we have the opportunity, indeed the responsibility, to renew the special relationship for this new age. The special relationship. Prime Minister Tony Blair, I appreciate you coming back, Mr. Prime Minister. The special relationship. So long lasting. Prime Minister Tony Blair, I appreciate you coming back, Mr. This is Amanda. Here I am again in my cozy editing bed in my editing jammies and my giant editing cardigan. This is the second part of our two-part series on dads. Uh, The previous one, there was an interview with Jess's dad, Richard Ashworth. If you haven't listened to that yet... Uh, please do go back and listen to it. It's episode number 49. It's very fun and uh, darkly political. So this is part two. This is American Dad. This is my dad, uh, Rip Stauffer. Uh, Just to warn you ahead of time, uh, there are a couple points in this where the audio goes a little bit uh, crackly. This is because um, my dad was using a headset microphone and he is a big Santa Claus looking man and I think the headset mic might have rubbed into his beard at a few points. Um, if that annoys you, I'm sorry. I promise it's only a couple points in the interview. It's uh, worth listening to anyway. It only happens a couple times. And you know what? Maybe you're one of those like ASMR weirdos and you're into it. So um, if that's you, then Merry Christmas. Uh, anyway, here's my dad. So, we said, so when I went to my dad, the first thing we said was we asked him, like, when he was born and uh, what it was to be British when he was born. You were born in the same year. You were born in 1952, right? Yep. Um, yeah, and well, my dad was saying, because I said, what's it like to be British in 1952? And my dad pointed out he was born on a military base in Malta in 1952. <laughs> uh, yeah. The first of many similarities that you guys have with one another, military backgrounds. Um, but he, uh, he was saying uh, he thought that really being British hadn't changed. Maybe, like, I guess multiculturalism had changed it, but... Like, being British hadn't particularly changed since 1952. What would you say? Do you feel like being American has... What would it mean to be American in 1952, and what does it mean to be American now? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That was a big question. That's a big question. Well, one other similarity. I was also born on a a military base. I was born at an Air Force base in Maine, the state of Maine. That would have been an easier question to answer, because what, what it means to be American, living in America now, is... There are apparently two answers. Um, And so has it changed? I'd say it it has, but it hasn't. I mean, we have grappled with a lot in the last 66 years, um, what it means to be an American. In the 1950s, what it meant to be an American, at least what was projected as what it meant to be an American was sort of this, you know, 1950s Ozzie and Harriet, mom and apple pie, 
uh, there was a lot of patriotism after the war. Um, the anti-communism sentiment was really huge. So if you were anything at all like a socialist, um, that was considered un-American. In fact, we had a whole committee when I was born still going, and it, it continued for many years. The House um, House of Representatives had a committee called the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Yeah. Yeah. It was famous for McCarthyism. So, so you could actually be dragged in front of Congress for being un-American, which at that time really meant that you were left of center. It's weird, isn't it? Because at exactly the same time, like in the UK, just after the war, we had a like a a landslide Labour victory in 1950. Mm -hmm. uh, no, that's in 1945. Um, it's weird that the same event had very different effects on either side of the Atlantic. Yeah, it, it is weird. And you know that one of the interesting things now that you mentioned labor, when I think of labor, one of the other things that happened um, throughout the 50s was that labor, actual labor, in, in terms of unions at factories and other enterprises in the United States, grew to pretty much unprecedented levels. There were all kinds of labor protections passed into law. Um, the labor union movement grew exponentially. Unfortunately, it, it sort of outgrew itself in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, but, but that's kind of an interesting paradox. And, you know, the, one of the things, for a while I worked in a factory in the 70s, and I used to tell people that were in the union with me, you know, just sort of how socialist the union was, and they would get really angry that, that I would even intimate that, that they were anything like communists or socialists. But it was clearly a, a, a socialist movement. I mean, I, I worked with people with second, third grade education who were making a lot of money because they were in a union and had great benefits and just didn't understand that that whole construct was socialist. Mm. And I, so that was that all come out of the, the the Cold War. It was just like just anti like Russian feeling. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Do you feel? I mean, going back a bit earlier than that, we were talking about like your uh, childhood in like the fifties, because that's sort of immediately after the war, and it's also I think the fifties is when they started making people say like the Pledge of Allegiance in school. Do you yep. feel like you were sort of uh, brought up in your education to be really patriotic? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't just my education. It was, you know, my parents. You know, mm -hmm. my dad, your grandfather, was was very conservative. My mom wasn't until later in her years. Um, she was a lot more liberal when I was a kid. But, I mean, when we had national holidays, I would go out in my Cub Scout or Boy Scout uniform and, and play the bugle while my dad raised the flag. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, that was a real thing. That's we really crazy. did that. Yeah. <laughs> and we weren't, you know, other than the fact that I could play the bugle, we weren't that unusual on our street. <laughs> now, you know, having said that, that's what it meant to be a, a sort of white suburban American, 
Yeah. In the 50s. There, there were other ethnic groups that don't look on the 50s quite so fondly. No. Um, okay. Uh, my dad actually lived in Virginia, McLean, Virginia, when he in the 60s. Because uh, his dad was working at the British Embassy in the Navy. Uh, he was in the Navy and then worked at the British Embassy. And he was saying his main memory of the of Britain in the uh, America in the 60s was uh, DC Comics. Uh, oh. Yeah, Superman and the Green Lantern. Um, and he was, uh, but I guess it kind of, uh, I, I didn't say this to my dad, but it feels like 1960s America is like the time to have been in America. Like it's like, you know, uh, all of the sort of the definition of what it, what I think of as America seems to come from that sort of time. You, mm. you know, the kind of uh, madmen, kind of uh, bright colors and big motels and big cars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was that. It, interestingly, though, the 60s was looked at a time of great change mm -hmm. in America because, you know, starting, starting in the mid-60s, I guess, sort of the Vietnam War, yeah. Um, really started to change a lot of people's minds about America's place in the world and, and were we were we really doing the right thing yeah. by by being in Vietnam. I mean, you know, my country right or wrong was a was a big statement back in the sixties. Mm -hmm. And there were those who felt that way and there were those you know, for every John John McCain yeah. There was a there was a John Kerry, you know. There mm -hmm. were I, to me the people, and I was involved in the anti-war movement later on in the '60s once I got to be old enough. But the the people that I admired most that I met at, at marches and other events were the Vietnam veterans against the war because they had actually been there and could talk yeah. about it. Um, you know the whole. The whole mid-60s flower child movement, the hippie movement and stuff, a lot of that was really great change. So by the end of the 60s, we were kind of where we are a little bit today. You know, we had we had a lot of polarization. Um, and what it meant to be America kind of de depended on which side of the political spectrum you looked at it from. Yeah, yeah. Do you see what, I mean, what was the outcome of that? Like, where do you see this this? Is it, it's happening again. Like, do you see progress? Oh, I wish I could say that. I wish <laughs> I could say that. I mean, like, not. It's also not. A, we're recording this on. What is it the twelfth, thirteenth of October? Not which is shortly after Brett Kavanaugh's um, confirmation. Uh, confirmation. So it's sort of a weird time to be asking about it. I guess. Yeah, but, no one's in a great mood at the moment. Well, I mean, nobody's been in a great mood since the last presidential election, at least nobody who thinks the way I do, or yeah. who really thinks. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I feel that it's unusual. I don't know, if you hear John Meacham, we've had this before, and he looks at it from a, a long historical perspective, and I kind of can see history repeating itself a little bit, as I just said, from the 60s. What's disappointing to me at this point in my life is that when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, you know, it seems like we fought for a lot, a lot of, you know, civil rights kinds of things. Um, 
that now kind of seem to be unwinding, or at least there's there's attention to things now that makes me realize that a lot of the progress we thought we were making back in the 60s and, and 70s and some of those movements it just didn't happen that we thought they had. I mean, was there progress? Yeah, you don't see black and white drinking fountains anymore. Um, but there were a lot of structural things that I guess we didn't realize at the time were structural things, yeah. like the redlining in terms of real estate and things like that, that continued to hold especially black people back for, for many, many years after that. And those sores were just sort of allowed to exist and fester. And so now we're fighting a lot of the same battles. I mean, I'm not because I'm an old white guy and nobody <laughs> needs my help anymore. But a lot of those same battles are being waged again. And it's kind of a it's kind of a disappointment, but in, in another way, I'm glad to see it happen, and I really hope we win this time. Yeah, me too. Um, what? So, what do you think? I mean, because I was talking to my dad about what it is to be British, and we're talking a lot about reserve and irony and all those things that you think of when you think of British people. Uh, and we were saying, kind of in contrast to what you might see as Americans, is quite sort of like optimistic and loud and. <laughs> confident, but is there a particular that? What do you think that define the American character in sort of a broad way? I think we do tend to be maybe optimistic. Um, the the whole sort of loud, ugly American thing. I've seen it many, many times. I mean, I was. <laughs> I, when I was when I was in the Navy, we did six months in Toulon, and I, I know I've told Amanda this story, but I had a kid that worked for me. He was probably 21, I think, when he worked for me. He wasn't a kid, but I thought of him that way. Um, here we were in, in Toulon, France, on the Côte d'Azur, and this kid went to McDonald's every single day. <laughs> and ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner at McDonald's. Oh, my God. Um, to me, that was sort of the ultimate in American hubris or, or whatever. I don't know. What, I don't even know what to think of it. Um, to me, it was utter stupidity, but he, he seemed to feel like it was kind of a patriotic thing to do. Um, so, so, yeah, I guess I, I, I think we're – Ultimately optimistic. I don't think. I, I think some of that optimism optimism has been attenuated. Um, it, it, it's certainly not what it was two years ago. Um, just by some of the darkness that that we see among our leadership these days. Um, some of the events that, I mean, just some of the events that have happened this week, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem like what we thought it meant to be American as sort of a, a and it, from a world leadership perspective. We, we kind of got used to being, yeah, or at least thinking of ourselves as leaders in the world because we had a strong military, because... Our presidents usually, whether it was even partially hypocritical or not, usually stood for the right thing. Mm. 
Um, we don't see that anymore. We have a president now who apparently admires people like um, Kim Jong John Il and um, admires uh, what's his name Erdogan in Turkey and Duterte in the Philippines and certainly Vladimir Putin. We yeah. don't know what's going on there. But this whole thing that just happened this week with uh, Kos Kosoji, the journalist. Oh, it's so horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the president comes out and says, well, you know, we're, we're making a lot of money selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. Do you want to lose that to the Russians? I mean, just to, to even come out and make that argument. Yeah. In, in a, public. He's a businessman, or, I mean, whether he's a good one. But I guess that's just how he yeah. sees everything, isn't it? Um, well, yeah. It, it's, he sees things that way, and he sees – I think it's also colored, colored by – I think every American president before him would have thought that same thing, but it would have been in the back of their head, not yeah. not in the front, and not in a you know they wouldn't have been saying that in a public way. That would have been brought up, yeah, maybe in a meeting, but it wouldn't have been the first thing that would be brought up. It would we be have the same thing. thing. We have to consider. We have the same thing. We we have res. I mean, our prime minister has reservations about coming out against. Saudi Arabia for exactly the same reasons. Well, yes, she's not saying it. In a way, it's almost more slimy because she's kind of um, saying one thing in public, but she's not going to lift a finger to, um, you know, there are going to be no sanctions against Saudi Arabia because we're so dependent on them. Mm -hmm. It'll be the same here. It just won't be as overt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, do you think... Uh, you're talking about, um, like, Americans that all of the Trump making Americans question the position in the world and like being a world leader and all this stuff. And do you think that Americans tend to think of themselves in terms of place in the world? Cause I remember we were just talking to Jess's dad and he was talking about being British and the way he was talking about was the way he was talking about it was sort of like, the things that make me British rather than American or rather than European as opposed to these other places. And I don't feel like, I, I don't feel like Americans have tended to think that way um, in terms of like, in terms of how they stack up against other countries. I feel like we've always just been taught that we're the best. <laughs> um I think there's a lot of merit to that. Um, I, I think in many ways we kind of have been, whether it's overt or more subtle. I mean, certainly, you know, one of the big big arguments that, that I've always heard from my parents and from a lot of pundits whenever anybody talk, tries to compare, say, the French to us or the the Italian stuff or the Germans, you know, that people talk about, I know there was a lot of controversy during the Gulf Wars about the fact that we couldn't use French airspace and, and you know, the, the big thing was, well, imagine if, you know, if we hadn't come to your help in World War II, <laughs> you know, we saved you guys in World War II. Um, well, well who's the, <laughs> who, yeah, who's, 
who's the, who's the comedian who talked about that? One of the comedians I really liked was talking about, well, we saved him in World War II, didn't we? And he said, well, gee, I don't think we did. I mean, I was drinking beer down at a bar down the corner. <laughs> I wasn't even around in World War II. What about you? You remember going over to France in World War II and saving anybody from the Nazis? So, but I mean, that was kind of the argument, you know, that that America had saved the world, and it was kind of a heady thing after World War II that that mm -hmm. the Allies had done a really good thing. I mean, the Nazis were clearly objectively evil, mm -hmm. and we beat them back. But you know, because I grew up in the fifties and sixties. There was a great tendency to sort of leave, not leave everybody else out of it, but certainly to leave the role of the Russians out of it. You know, if it hadn't been for the Russians, we wouldn't have won either. Um, or probably wouldn't have won. We can't say we wouldn't have, but that Eastern Front was, was a very powerful, yeah. powerful part of that war. Um, but we tend to discount that and think yeah. that we came to the, came to the rescue. Yeah, uh, And so I think there's some of that. I, I think, though, that, you know, Americans' reluctance to get into World War One, and, again, their reluctance to get into World War Two because of the reluctance to get into World War One and all the backlash that happened following that politically, um, I think there are many people still today who feel like, yeah, we might be pretty good, but we shouldn't be around, shouldn't be sort of the world's policeman. That's exactly the phrase my dad used as well. Mm -hmm. But he was saying that we used to be that until the war, basically. Yep. <laughs> and, and then you took it over from us. Yeah. Well, we just got a bigger navy, and your empire got smaller, and we took over some of them. Yeah, well, and I, because we did an episode on uh, Churchill and FDR, and mm -hmm. I was saying, I sort of hadn't quite realized, like, because, you know, um, with the Second World War, you, you kind of don't, the, the narrative of how you see it in 2018 is kind of, in one way, and it, I didn't really realize that in 1941, we basically thought we were going to lose. Like, that was that was the reality we were living in. And if it wasn't for America coming in, that probably would have been the case. And Churchill sort of had to give away a lot to persuade you guys to come in. And it kind of was the end of, of the British Empire, probably for better rather than worse. But that we kind of did, we did, that we sort of sealed our fate in, well, we didn't have a choice. But we kind of meant after that, the the balance of power in the world shifted from from us to you. Yeah, well, we had to build such a huge such a huge military force mm. to to fight both in Europe and in Japan that you know it it ended up with this this behemoth that kind of got out of control for a long time. I think I was I was kind of interested to see because I had. The, the sort of image I had was, yes, we were reluctant to get into the war, but I had never realized the extent of that reluctance until I just saw uh, whichever one it was where, where uh, about Churchill, where he was talking to FDR and asking him to, to send some tanks or something that the British had bought. And to get them, they had to they had to push them up to the border and have Canadians come across with horses or something and drag them across the border. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, that was that was uh, oh, what movie was that? Their finest hour. Oh, or the new um, Gary Oldman. That's not. That's yeah, not Gary Oldman as Churchill. Oh, is that the one with Gemma Austin? What's it called? 
Is it called the Funny Flower? Maybe it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Sorry, ignore me. I, I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think you. But I guess um, I think FDR. Well, what I had read when we did our episode was FDR kind of knew you were going to have to. He just was kind of telling everybody because there was so much feeling in the American people that they didn't want to go to war. Mm. Right. Um, uh, speaking of military, you were in the military. <laughs> I was. Um, uh, why did you join the military? I don't think I've ever asked you this before. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it, it was a number of reasons. One is, um, I just, I didn't like living in Cincinnati. Um, that that was that was one reason I wanted to get I wanted to get out of Cincinnati I wanted to get away I wanted to see the world I wanted to to do something more with my life than what I was doing at the time. Um, the military didn't scare me. Um, at the time, I thought it might be good for me, give me some discipline and some focus, and it it did do those things. This uh, well after just the. For people doing the math, this was after Vietnam. Yeah, I was gonna say. So it wasn't like you weren't gonna go get killed in Vietnam. Yeah, I was gonna. So yes, yeah, so post Vietnam. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I mean that didn't really matter. I I got lucky in Vietnam because the years that I was actually eligible for the draft were the years they ran a lottery. Right. And I got lucky in that one lottery. It's, killed my lottery chances ever since, I guess, but um, I got lucky in that one lottery and, and didn't have to go. Yeah. At one point, I was so sure that I was going to have to go that I was actually talking to recruiters, though. What was the lottery? Um, it was based on your birthday. Oh, wow. And they drew numbers. They drew lots to... Uh, so if, if you were born on a certain day, you got a number from 1 to 366, I guess. Um, and the lower your number, if, if you were in a, a low number group, say from 1 to 100, you were going to get drafted. If you were in a high number group, as both of my numbers were up above 350, I was never going to get drafted. Um, so they had gone to that system. They actually had to do it twice because they they didn't listen to the statisticians the first time and ended up drawing really biased samples. Um, but both times I ended up with with very high numbers, so I wasn't going to get drafted. Um, at one point I thought I was, and I had actually started talking to Navy recruiters. For me, I guess it was really kind of almost an inevitable thing. You know, I kind of grew up in that. A, a militaristic, if not military, household. My dad was in the Air Force Reserve until I was probably 10, before he retired from the Air Force Reserve. But I was in Boy Scouts. You know, I was kind of in uniform at least a couple times a week <laughs> uh, until I was in my mid-teen years. And, I mean, even after that, I was in marching band, so I was in uniform a couple times a week for that. Um, so being in the military, having that sort of regimented existence didn't bother me or didn't scare me or didn't deter me. Um, and because my dad had been in the military, because 
many of my other relatives had been in the military. It just seemed like sort of a natural thing to do and an easy way to, to change my life, which was what I was really looking to do. That was probably the biggest reason I joined. And how long were you in the Navy? 20 years. I retired wow. So you weren't um, uh, driven uh, to defend capitalism from the Reds. That wasn't your that wasn't your driving motivation. No, <laughs> not not before I got in. I mean, once I got in, yeah, that was kind of the mission for most of my military career because yeah. the Cold War was going on until very late in my military career. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we, we did, speaking of Malta, yeah. um, one of the things I got to take part in when I was in the military was the Malta Summit back in 19, I think it was 89 or 90. This was President Bush and um, President uh, Gorbachev, and it took place in Malta, and my ship went to Malta, and a, a Soviet ship called the Slava, which was a guided missile cruiser, also went to Malta. We anchored right next to each other. And for the first time in my military career, we actually had visits with on each other's ships. So, like, the chiefs from the Russian ship came over to our ship. We went over to their ship. Their officers came over and visited our ship and had dinner. Our officers went over to their ship, visited and had dinner. We took tours of each other's ships. It was it was pretty amazing. And, you know, the funny thing was we were all sitting there at dinner with these Russian chiefs, and we all knew they were thinking the same thing we were. It was that, you know, I've spent an entire career learning how to kill you, and here I am eating dinner with you. But, but we got along, and it was, it was interesting. You know, you had to look at these people you had sort of been forced to demonize and think of as the enemy as other human beings. And it was, it was kind of a... It was kind of symbolic of the time, I think, because that was during Glasnost and, um, you know, the, the beginning of detente with, with the yeah. Soviets. Yeah. 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 Um, I think we were talking about this in the um, <clears throat> episode we did about <clears throat> Tony Blair and George W. Bush, but I think, was it on that ship, on that trip that you were, like, around Rumsfeld and Cheney and all those guys? Yep. Because um, I remember, I think I said this on the episode, that you've always said about people who sort of during the Bush years would talk about, like, just all these conspiracies and Bush did 9-11 and all these grand plans behind this sort of evil world order and that you would always say that, like, I've met those guys and they're not smart enough <laughs> to orchestrate <laughs> things like that. Yeah, that's the thing that always amazes me is that a lot of these, especially the... The conspiracy theorists on the right think that, that government employees and government agencies are all really incompetent, but somehow they're they're able to come up with these elaborate schemes and keep them from keep everybody from finding out about them. Yeah. Um, that many people can't keep a secret. <laughs> <laughs> or even come up with some of these ideas, you know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so one of the things we would talk to my dad about, because my dad is a big, you know, softy, lefty liberal these days. But in the 70s, he was a small business owner, and he uh, voted for Margaret Thatcher because, well, he was telling us um, that literally he was running a shop 
uh, and his, the lights were going out for two days a week uh, in the 1970s because of strikes. And he and his brother had to take car batteries from shop to shop to try and um, uh, keep things alight. And he was saying that, you know, the unions had just got too powerful, or he felt at the time, and and he couldn't, it felt like he was getting in the way of people's welfare. Uh, and that was his uh, justification for voting for Thatcher. And again, it seemed that there was a similarity in perhaps your politics at the time. And as we were saying, we did Thatcher and Reagan, and we kind of wanted to talk to people that remember that time and what it was like. So they were both such uh, influential and popular political figures that now have had such net sort of like tainted legacy. Mm. Yeah, I... I don't know. It was, it was interesting with Reagan. It, Reagan to me was was initially a joke, and, and had been for a long time. I mean, I used to buy these comedy albums back in the '70s, where Reagan had just started talking about running for president, and a lot of these comedy albums made fun of him for, for thinking about becoming president because they were thinking, you know, nobody who had ever starred in a movie, a B-grade movie with a chimp. <laughs> Would ever would ever have the gravitas to to be president of the United States, um, but he was a very political being. And interestingly, you know, a lot of people. One of the similarities between him and Thatcher was he's seen as a as a union breaker because yeah. he broke the the strike of the um, air control air controllers here, the mm-hmm. civil air controllers. Um, but Reagan was president of the Actors Guild, the yeah. Screen Actors Guild. And he was involved in the House of America, wasn't he? He snitched on people. Uh, I don't know about that. What I, yeah, I what think I, he gave people's names to the committee when he was um, running the Actors Guild. Mm, no. uh, he might, he might have. But but one thing to remember about him when he was in the Actors Guild is he actually presided over strikes. Yes, yeah. yes, I he was, he was not really anti-union. What he did because for the air about the air controllers was kind of a, a more pragmatic thing that kind of had to be done because if he had allowed that air controller strike to go on, all the airports would have shut down, and that probably was the beginning of the end for the ultra-powerful unions in the United States, which is a mixed blessing because they had gotten probably more powerful than they should have been, and with that power came a lot of corruption. On the other hand, a lot of the union breaking that's gone on since then, I think, has really deteriorated opportunity and quality of life for people who can't get into the investor class or, you know, people who are stuck doing labor-type labor jobs. They, in many cases, they're helpless these days, and I hate to see that. I, I think the unions got to be too big and too powerful and too corrupt for their own good, but I would rather have seen an adjustment and not a an obliteration, which is what's taking place. Thatcher, I, I never... I never cared that much for mostly just because a lot of it was because of Steve Lee, Amanda. Oh, yeah. I was hanging out with Steve Lee during some of the 
Thatcher years. Steve Lee was a was a almost full blooded Cherokee that I worked with in the Navy, and he wasn't fond of British people just because he was an Indian. Um, um, but he hated Margaret Thatcher. He hated the fact that she went to war in the Falklands. He got in a in a big fight with some British sailors in Virginia Beach over that. Yeah. Uh, at one point. Yeah, I think he was right. Um, so was that your reason for for Reagan, or was it just? Sort of- did you, you you voted for him, didn't you? I voted for him just because I was voting my self interest. He was doing an awful lot for the people in the military. Mm, right. Um, that was the reason for you. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I mean, at the time, I didn't really, I've always been a little more independent. I've always said I vote for the for the person, not the party. Mm-hmm. In recent years, that hasn't been true just because, but I think it's just because most of the people in the other party are lunatics. Um, but, you know, at the time, I, I would vote for whoever I thought would do the best job. And they weren't putting up really great people against Reagan at the time. I, I don't think anybody they they were running would have been a better president. But again, I was, you know, I was trying to vote my self-interest. I voted for Jimmy Carter, and he just didn't turn out to, to be that effective. He was, he was too much a micromanager, I think, um, and just didn't get a whole lot of stuff done. He's gotten a whole lot more done for the world as an ex-president than he ever did as president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was kind of a bit like Thatcherism in the UK. It was kind of a whole thing, wasn't it? It really united the country. Like, a lot of people that wouldn't have have voted for him otherwise did. Like, he yeah. really... Yeah. There um, were actual organizations called Democrats for Reagan, Reagan Democrats. Well, why was uh, Why was it? How did he manage to do that kind of thing? What was it about him? Um, well... You know, Carter gave that famous Malay speech, and yeah. people criticized him for that, but it was true. There was a lot of Malays, largely because of the reaction during the 70s to what had happened in the 60s. You know, we had gone into the, into the 60s at the beginning of that decade thinking America was this great world power, this great moral world power, um, and by the end of the 60s, we didn't think of ourselves that way so much anymore. Um, by the end of the 60s, the, the Pentagon Papers had come out, and in the Pentagon Papers we found out that, hey, we really we were really a bunch of jerks in, in Vietnam. Um, I, I don't know if you can say assholes on your podcast. Yeah, we, we don't have any censors. Oh, okay. So we were a bunch of assholes. <laughs> um, about about Vietnam, really. Um, that that was really kind of an evil thing that we had done to go in there, and a lot of the the bad things that everybody had said about that war turned out to be true. Um, so we had a kind of a American expression come to Jesus moment at that at that time, saying, "Wait a minute, who who actually are we?" And so the seventies. We had a lot of a lot of changes. Um, Amanda's mom, when she was in the Navy, she was in the Navy for four years, and when she first went into the Navy, 
she worked in aviation, and the the aircraft used to land, and the canopies would roll back, and smoke would pour out of the canopies, and she would find roaches in the in the ashtrays in the fighter planes. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> so there were there was a lot of drug use in the military. There were a lot of kind of leftover hippies still serving in the military. Um, and you know, Amer- America had lost a lot of its standing. And you know, Reagan came out and still had this vision of America as the shining city on the hill and he was he had the nickname of the great communicator and he really was i mean when he gave a speech everybody listened and he made everybody feel better and so that's why i think he was able to be so effective is is he was, he was such a good communicator say again kind of reassuring he was reassuring he um and and he put action behind his words as well you know he he got the military a pay raise. When I first got into the military, um, most of the enlisted people, including the very senior enlisted people that I knew, were on food stamps. They were taking welfare, even though they were getting paid by the military, because they were getting paid so little that they lived way below the poverty line. Wow. He got a, a massive pay raise and benefits raise for the military, mm-hmm. um, which now made it possible for us to actually live and buy groceries and not have to use food stamps. Um, he he went he he actually started to build up the military. He got budget put in to to upgrade all our ships, upgrade all our weaponry. Um, it was just a good time for the military because he wanted to build it into this this even bigger behemoth than it was. Now, whether that turns out to be a great thing in history or not, I don't know. But because I was in the military at that time, it was a good thing. And also because of that, we were able to sort of assert our moral authority again in, in some places in the world. Yeah. And that turned out to be kind of a good thing. In the, in the Mediterranean, up until the late 60s, flags would, would or ships, merchant ships would dip their flags when they passed by an American warship. That stopped during the 70s and started again during the 80s. Um, so he, he managed to gain some respect. Now, you know, some of that got lost with the whole Iran-Contra stuff toward the end of his, his term, but um, he really kind of built up American prestige in the world. Yeah. To a great extent, and to an extent that nobody could deny. You know, nobody could say, well, he hasn't done anything. Yeah. He got a lot done, and a lot of it was positive. Yeah. Do you think, because, uh, again, my dad was saying, you know, he, he sort of he doesn't regret voting for Mother Thatcher the first time, but he does regret voting for her the second time, which was after the Falklands and after Belgrano. And he was saying, you know, we're basically living in the 40th year or whatever it is of Thatcherism, and, and we're we're seeing this sort of uh, the, the negative effects of that. I mean, and I think that's probably true of Rick. I feel like he, he's cast a long shadow. Do you think where America is now, I mean, has it sort of kind of what, because the things I read sort of suggest it all began there and where, where, where we are today with, with Trump and everything is kind of the sort of inevitable outcome of things that began in the 80s. What do you think? I almost tend to think that Trump is more 
a product, and this is going to sound paradoxical, but I think Trump is more a product of the Clinton regime than it was the Reagan regime. Okay. I think I think I don't think Trump would have stood a chance if he had run in 1988, hmm. um, because at that time, you know, people would have just thought he was a buffoon. Um, I think that that you know Bush got in, and he was a he was a pretty harmless guy, and he was a pretty honorable he was a pretty honorable guy. He was probably the most qualified. You're talking about H W Bush. H W Bush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was he was he was probably the most qualified on paper anyway president we've ever had. He had more experience with government, more experience with the military, the CIA, the State Department. He was just this massively qualified, experienced person. Um, but he wasn't a very good communicator. So he suffered. He suffered because of that. Um, he was easy to make fun of. He didn't have a lot of really great initiatives. Um, he had this dumb thing he said at the convention before he got elected that said, read my lips, no new taxes. Yeah. Everybody gave Reagan a lot of credit for cutting taxes, but Reagan raised taxes 11 times during his term, and, and people forget that. Um, and people were so tired of tax raises that by the time Bush ran, he, raised on, he ran on no new taxes, but some of the sort of right-wing excesses that occurred during the Reagan years caused taxes to have to be raised. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were spending so much on the government, spending so much on the military, they had to raise taxes to pay for it. And at the time, they actually cared about paying for things. Um, so Bush made that promise, and then he had to break it because, you know, he continued some of those, those spending um, trends, and they had to pay for those. So then you get a guy like Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton was another great communicator. Bill Clinton was a appeared to be a man of the people, kind of was a man of the people, grew up poor, single mom in Arkansas, um, Rhodes Scholar, you know, incredibly intelligent person, very, very good communicator. Um, people really liked him. He was a, a guy you wanted to have a beer with. Um, and at the same time, you had Ross Perot, who was a business person who everybody thought, well, at least he can probably do something with the budget. So I actually voted for Perot. It's, it's one of the great regrets of my life because it was – kind of a throwaway vote. Um, but I didn't know who to vote for. I, I wasn't really impressed with Bill Clinton. I wasn't really impressed with with Bush, even though I had stood two feet away from him when we were at the Malta Summit. Um, I thought they were both pretty okay people. I thought what we needed at the time was a real radical change, so I voted for Perot. Unfortunately, most of the people like me who voted for Perot pulled votes and got Clinton in. And I think Clinton was a good president. He was a good enough president over the eight years. But what happened because Clinton beat Bush 
and the Republicans never saw that coming, was there was a group of Republicans who retrenched and came up with this long-term strategy that the Democrats have not beaten yet, even though we got Obama for eight years. We lost incredibly during the Obama years. We've lost all the state houses. We've lost Congress. We've lost now the Supreme Court. Um, but I don't see that as a legacy of Reagan. I don't see Trump as a legacy of Reagan. I see Trump as the sort of culmination of the anti-Clinton reaction from the 90s. Yeah. Um, because a lot of these yahoos that we have in Congress now, and even one in the Supreme Court, grew out of that, not out of any love for, for Reagan. The Reagan Republicans of the 80s hate Trump. But do you yeah. not, did you ever sort of buy into... Uh, not all, but some. Did I ever buy into what? Into, like, Reaganomics. Because I feel like growing up, oh. it was... Well, I feel like it was always sort of a... I mean, not necessarily from, like, within our family, but just the sort of general message in culture, even if you were more of a left-wing person, was that, like, was that America was the meritocracy and we should be striving to be rich and individual rich people was good for everyone. And I sort of wonder if that's not connected to Trump in some way. Is that, like, why the fact that he's, that, uh, as we've learned over the last couple of weeks, never really earned any money, but because he's got this image of being a successful businessman, then that's, like... He must be clever. Yeah, he must be, like good enough. And I feel like even before Trump, you had to pay some sort of lip service to the idea that capitalism solves everything and the market solves everything. Again, even if you were a Democrat in order to be elected. Um, well, so that's kind of a lot to unpack. But, <laughs> well, just because... I mean, part of the problem is is we're so bad at math. Okay, so so nobody understands economics because economics is just is a very difficult subject, um, and because of that, these very simplistic ideas like trickle down economics tend to have appeal to people who. You know, one of the things you just said was, was really interesting because ever since I was a kid, it's always been kind of a line, if you're so smart, well, why aren't you rich? Mm, yeah. You know? Um, I think we do equate richness with intelligence, you know, that if you're clever, you will get rich. Um, I think there are clever people who are altruistic enough that they never get rich. I think they're few and far between. I think that there are very intelligent people who use some of that intelligence to get rich. Um, I think that's okay. But there are an awful lot of rich people, and our current occupant is one of them, who are rich just because they were born rich, yeah. and they've, they've managed to never lose it. In his case, we're not sure. Yeah. Yeah. In his case, we're not sure that's true, but they've managed to hang on to a lot of it, and you know, 
they unfortunately use the logic that, well, if, if, if you're rich, then you must be smart. Yeah. Um, and that you're kind of above the law as well. They were- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's been unfortunately the case for a long time, that the rich people do tend to get away with a lot more than poor people do. Yeah. They, can, they can afford the lawyers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are people... There are people who are living below the poverty line who vote for Trump despite all that. Vote for Trump because he gives, they think, you know, he's smart enough to get away with with dodging taxes. Well, that's who we want in the White House. Mm, Um, I mean, we probably need to wrap up quite soon. Uh, What what do you think, do you, what's the solution? Like, what? (laughs) You tell us. I don't know. You've got many more years' experience. Like, what what can be done? I don't know. I mean, right now, the one of the primary problems that we have is the twenty-four hour news cycle. I think Um, the fact that we have social media, we have you know Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. Uh, When I when I was younger, we had three networks. I mean, it was kind of like you with the BBC, Um, only our networks were differently constructed than yours. Um, The networks all felt they had a a real obligation to do good journalism and to tell the truth because they saw themselves as this sort of communications medium for democracy, you know, an informed public is, is a necessary thing to a, a real democracy. And they saw themselves as part of that. Once the 24-hour news cycle came in and cable news and, and they had to fill up every minute with breaking news, um, they now actually have a show called Breaking News, whether there's any breaking news or not. Yeah, um, and, and they and, may have to try it out and find new news or things that aren't really news, fake news, to use a horrible phrase, because they have shows called Breaking News. They have to show something. Yeah. And, and so they'll, they'll, on breaking news on CNN, they'll show 55 minutes of an empty podium and, and people stumbling over themselves to say, well, he's going to be out any minute now. <laughs> um, and, and it's just insane. And, and because of that, they have to fill up every second because they're trying to draw viewers with this sensationalist bullshit. And um, that, as much as anything... Trump knows how to use that because he's a reality show star and he spent many years trying to learn how to get ratings. And that's what he's done. He's, he's learned how to get ratings. He's learned how to use the bully pulpit more effectively, if not for good, than, than just about anybody else. I don't want to say he's a great communicator because clearly he's not, but he's a great user of media. He's a a really good media hog. And because now we have these people in the United States living in these bubbles, people who only watch Fox News, people who only watch NBC, people who never look for the middle ground or never even look for facts. I mean, this is... You know, part of that reason with economics, we, we now know that trickle-down economics don't really work because those market forces have been discounted by things like 
behavioral economics. But nobody knows about that because they'd rather live on these platitudes and these sound bites than actually think deeply about anything. And I don't know what the solution is because until we can somehow get shamed into leaving this sound bite social media mentality um, behind and actually look for facts and look for things that are actually going to be effective, I don't know what to do. You know, I mean, that to me is the most depressing thing about all this state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's something lighter we could talk about, but I feel like talking anything about being an um, American these days always just comes back to, oh, Trump. Okay, well, maybe I'll ask <laughs> what you asked my dad, which is, what's it like to be Amanda's dad? <laughs> That's a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I wish we I wish we could get to London more, but yeah, and then see some of her comedy more. But it's always been a lot of fun to be Amanda's dad. Um, <laughs> I think one of my my favorite my favorite memories of being Amanda's dad was I used to I used to tell her this really bad dad joke all the time, which was. Um, what do you call a boomerang that doesn't come back? A stick. And for many years, when she was like three and four, she would fall for it. And, you know, first she would giggle, and then she would smirk, and then she would get mad. And one morning we were sitting down in Guantanamo Bay. We were having breakfast. I was getting ready to take her to, to school, and I said, Hey, man, what do you call a, a boomerang that doesn't come back? And she just looked up at me, and I said a stick, and she hopped off her bar stool and walked over to me and just hit me. <laughs> That's why it's fun to be my dad. <laughs> she's 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 always she's always been you know she's always she's never been afraid to challenge us. This is why this is why when you were talking about joining the military. Um, because you weren't afraid of a, like, regimented uniform lifestyle. This is why you always discouraged me from being in the military, because you didn't think I could act that. <laughs> no, I just didn't, I didn't think it was for you. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's been so fascinating. Thank well, you sure. So, thank you for giving us so much of your time. Sure, happy to do it anytime. again uh just before i end this uh my dad after we had stopped recording this said that he had thought of a better story to tell at the end um i'm gonna edit that story in here now i don't know why i'm doing that um it's not a very flattering story for me but it is pretty funny um another thing about it is uh he says it takes place in 1991 uh, that is not true. It takes place a few years after that. It doesn't matter to anyone but me, but now that I'm in my 30s, I, you know, I care about having years taken off my age, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, here's my dad again. So, being Amanda's dad was always fun. She was always uh, very creative very very dramatic and often usually really hilarious um, an example 1991 little background the uh, 
there was a crisis Haitian and Cuban refugees both started to try to cross the channel to get to the United States the Coast Guard um, and other law enforcement agencies were rounding them up and bringing them to Guantanamo Bay where we happened to be stationed at the time at the naval base there um, because of the huge influx of refugees and because of the equally huge influx of other service personnel that were there to, to take care of that crisis they had to um, evacuate all of the dependents that were on the island so I had to stay there but Amanda and her brother and her mom all got evacuated back to the states well her mom took her and her brother to her mother's house to Amanda's grandmother's house and one day while they were there um, Amy Amanda's mom was dealing with a lot of stuff with Dave and a lot of stuff with her mom Amanda came home from school and asked for a Tylenol because she said she had a headache Amy said okay I'll get you one and then a little while later Amanda came in and said can I get a Tylenol and Amy said I'll get you one but it just kept slipping by and slipping by and then a little while later um, when Amy finally got a few minutes she noticed that Amanda hadn't asked for the Tylenol anymore but she was working with her grandmother um, and they had gotten a little I don't know if it was a christening dress or a, a fancy little slip somewhere and they made some um, coat hanger wire wings and put uh, lace on those and made a halo and stuff and, and so Amy thought that was pretty cute and she came in and <laughs> she came in and said oh how cute honey Nana helping you uh, make a little angel costume and <laughs> turned around and looked at her dead serious and said no I'm dead I'm dead I died and went to heaven because my mom wouldn't give me a Tylenol so uh, that was Amanda growing up And there you go. That's uh that is what kind of person I am. Uh anyway, thank you for listening to this dad's episode. Uh if you haven't listened to our interview with Jess's dad yet, I encourage you to do so. Uh next week we should have a Christmas episode coming out. Uh Jess will also be talking on that one instead of me alone in my bedroom there are people who do podcasts where it's just this where it's just them talking in their apartments by themselves i don't mm, mm, i it's it's not for me is what i'm saying please do rate us and review us on itunes if you haven't yet uh follow us on twitter at special rail pod and uh we'll see you next week goodbye Appreciate you coming back, Mr. Prime Minister.